Thanks very much, Michelle. Well, we've finally reached the end of my series on the early church. And today I'm looking at this verse. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily to that who were being saved. Um, normally I would break this verse up into three different sermons. And so I want to start by apologising because I really wanted to finish this series today because of where we're heading next month. And um, so today my sermon is probably a little bit longer than what it normally is. But from this verse, I get this. A genuine church is heartfelt. I want to start by sharing some quotes with you. In his book, Love is Something You Do, longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston, John Bassagno, tells the story of when he went to the church for the first time to consider his call for the job at the church. He recalls walking into the small church located in downtown Houston. He said that when he walked in, there were few people in this dimly lit sanctuary. The church was very depressing. They were singing songs like funeral songs, such hymns was Day is Dying in the West. Later that day, he was walking around downtown to just check out the local area, and he saw a jewellery store that was having a grand opening. He went in, he said it was bright, it was cheerful inside. There was upbeat and happy music playing. There were friendly and enthusiastic people who greeted him as he walked in. They offered him some punch to drink and showed him around the store. He remarked that if he was given an invitation, he would have joined the jewellery store way before he would have joined the church. He left the store thinking, isn't it a shame the church has become so morbid? I read another quote from Olivia Holmes. Olivia was a Christian man who worked in the Supreme Court for 30 years. He was once asked in an interview why he chose the legal profession as his career. He answered, I may have entered the ministry if certain of my friends who were clergymen had not looked and acted more like undertakers. Let me give you another one. Renowned revivalist Vance Haver once said this, too many Christian services start at 11 o'clock sharp, but they end at 12 o'clock dull. <laughs> I have my brother Chris in Adelaide. Sorry, Chris, I'm quoting you. And um, he comes from very conservative churches. When my daughter left Tagulawa and went to uni, my daughter went to Hillsong. Well, obviously, my brother was not impressed. I remember he was talking to Zoe one day and he says, Zoe, don't you know, God doesn't look for the happy clappies. He looks for the chosen frozen. <laughs> I'm not sure what you think of these comments. Maybe a bit judgmental. But I can't help but think in some ways there's some truth in what all these people are saying. Unfortunately, many have an image in their mind of Christians as being stern, always serious and non-fun kind of people. Then we're left asking the same question as John asked himself, leaving the jewellery store. Why are churches so morbid? Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. If this is correct, have you ever wondered why so many church services are so dull and morbid? What is the reason for this? What is the reason that we think when we come into a church building, we have to act in some serious religious kind of solemn way? Church for many is more like memorial services than a celebration. 
But the truth is, church services aren't a memorial service for the dead. Jesus did die, but he didn't stay dead. So as a church service, it should not be like a funeral. Why is it like this? Well, if you thought John's comment about the jewellery store was um, judgmental, he went on and said this, church services are so morbid, not that because they've done for the dead, but sadly, they're done by the dead. How different is this from what we read and we're told concerning these early Christians? Notice this emphasis here on gladness. Here is a joyous group of people, a joyous church. The mark of a great church is a joyful church. It is a church that is characterised by gladness. Here are Christians that are gathered together every day, but it wasn't a drudgery. Their hearts were full of gladness. Here were Christians who were excited about their relationship with God. They were coming together because they experienced the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Their service and their lives was characterised by a joyful, heartfelt gladness to God and to others. When people entered into their midst, they knew these people were excited and alive. There was no sour-faced Christians here. In fact, it was completely the opposite. Here were people who had come to know the joy of Jesus Christ in their life. They knew that peace, they knew that peace that passes all understanding years before that verse was written or thought about by Paul. You know, it does make a great difference when you come to a service in which people are excited, in which people are joyful in the Lord. When there is a real celebration of Christ's victory over sin and his love for people. Do you remember when I spoke on prayer? Probably not. But anyway, I said I get confused how some people in life never shut up. They can talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. But when it comes to praying out loud, they never say boo. Well, often I have the same confusion when it comes to joyfulness as well. It confuses me how some people can change when they walk into a church building and come to a church service. In church, they are solemn and serious. But you take that same person on a social gathering like a birthday party or a community event or a barbecue or a football game, and then suddenly they become excited and enthusiastic. Well, let me tell you, those of us who know Jesus ought to be an example of enthusiasm. And yes, that includes the church. Some of you may know the word enthusiasm comes from the Greek word entheos. It's a compound word. En means in, theos means God. So the word enthuse means in God. So enthusiasm means that we are filled with God. Enthusiasm is how someone filled with God acts. To be filled with God is to be filled with life, to be filled with love, to be filled with joy, hope, faith, peace, power. How should being filled with these things make anyone feel and act? Well, they certainly would not act like they were in mourning, would they? No. They would demonstrate life. This was true for the early church. We, like them, have something to be excited about. We serve a saviour who loves us, a God who has forgiven us, a Lord who provides for our needs, a spirit who empowers us. When you think of all he's done for you, how can you not get excited about that? How can you not get excited about him? The only way I know that you wouldn't be excited about this 
is firstly, if you don't know or have experienced Jesus personally in your life at the beginning with, or maybe you do and you've drifted away. Well, let me be the first to encourage you today. Before you leave here or before you turn off the advice, whatever device you're watching the live stream on, make sure that neither of these is the situation for you today. If you don't know him personally, you can know him today. If you have drifted away from him, you can return to him today. We are emotional people, and let me tell you, emotions are good. In church, we should be free to be enthusiastic. We certainly should be joyful and happy towards God and towards each other. When they came together, they had gladness and joyful hearts. You'll notice it says something else about their hearts. They were not only joyful, Luke also states that they had sincere hearts. These first believers weren't just going through the motions. They didn't pretend to be anyone other than who they were. They were honest, they were truthful, and they truly believed and practised what they advocated. Or in other words, they were real. What you saw with them is what you got. A God-honouring church is made up of real, authentic people. People who recognise they're sinners saved by grace. They not only know who they are, more importantly, they know whose they are. They don't pretend, they don't put on shows, they don't put themselves up on pedestals. Don't know who said it, but there's a saying, if you're not living it and doing it, then you really don't believe it. We need to be real and have joy, sincere hearts. What the church needs today is a real revelation of the greatness of God. We need to daily remember the sheer number of things that God has done for his people through his Holy Spirit and through his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we walk around totally unaware, forgetting the blessings that we've received. If we could somehow recatch a glimpse of a small portion of the multitude of ways we have already been blessed by God, it would blow us away. It would bring to life that the old hymn says, let the amen be heard from his people again. I know at Bible study on Wednesday night, sorry to quote you without your permission, but where's said, he said, it's interesting when you get a whiteboard and he says, and you write out all the things that God has done. When you look at all these things, he said, it's exciting. He's right. There is much to be excited about. Pakenham needs to see that we are excited about Jesus. Sometimes we fall guilty of portraying a group of people having no fun or a group of people seeking to keep anyone else from having fun either. But that's not Christianity. That's not the biblical kind of Christianity that I read about. As a church and individuals, we should ask God to show us how he has blessed us. Ask him to reveal to you the things for which you should be thankful for. Ask him to give you a glimpse of his glory and a glimpse of his love. Such a revelation will help us realise we are the most blessed people that ever walked the earth. Such a revelation will not only change the, what we believe, it will change the way we live and it will change the way we act, both as individuals and as a church. We too will have hearts and lives that are sincere, genuine, real and joyful. This joy that they had turns into another quality that Luke mentions. He says it turns into praise, praising God. 
Notice it says that they had glad and sincere hearts and that they were praising God. This is about worship. They were involved in a joyous worship. Let's think about this word worship. Of course, the worship of these early Christians was nothing new to them. They did not invent something new. From the earliest records of the New Testament church, the congregation engaged in worship. They were informed about joyful worship from biblical traditions of the Old Testament. They would have known and heard those psalms that Michelle read out before regarding worship. Did they stir your soul? Well, let me give you some more. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for you to upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him and the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Shout with joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. My lips will shout for joy when I praise you, I whom you have redeemed. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and exalt him with music and song. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourines and hearts. I can't help but think there is no way, no way you can read these psalms without being gripped by the celebration aspect of worship. Jewish worship was a celebration. When you look at the way they worshipped happened both in the Old and New Testament, you notice something really interesting. It was not quiet. It was a noisy celebration. They would sing, they would lift their hands, they would clap their hands, and sorry, Baptists, but they even danced. And one sometimes went on for day after day after day. Tom commented, I spoke, um, I went to Meadowvale this week and Don, Tom spoke to the group and he remembers the time after the war in his town and he said the people in the streets came together and his quote was this, he said, they made so much noise, people would have thought that another war was just happening. These first believers were the same. They looked forward to praising and God and letting the world know how good he'd been to them. They loved the Lord too much to keep from smiling, from clapping, from rejoicing and from celebrating. The Lord Jesus was the object of the early church's affection. Their worship was a day-to-day -day reality, not just a once-a-week routine. Why did they do this? Because the risen Christ was living reality to them. His resurrection power was at work in their lives. Yet... They did it, and it was loud. Now, you may say that's fine for them, but what about us? How do we see worship today? Do you know, we have that old chorus, we've come into this house, gathered in his name to worship him. But I have a question for you. What is worship? You talk to most churches and ask them what worship is, and do you know the answer they give you? It's all about singing. I remember I had a time in Adelaide when I used to go around and I, I did it at one church and then another church and, and um, I used to go and lead worship services and churches used to ring me up and ask me, can you come and do your worship service at our church? And I'd say to them, what kind of church are you? And they'd tell me and I'd say, I can't come. I said, you won't like it. 
And do you know the first question they'd always ask me after that comment? They'd say, why, what kind of songs do you sing? And you know, I'd say to them, I said, I can tell you what kind of songs I sing when I lead worship. None, not one. I said, if I come and lead worship, I'm not going to sing one song. And they said, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. If you want me to come, you invite me to come and trust me or don't worry about it. If a church decided to never sing another song, would our service still involve worship? If so, how? If it's only about singing, you take singing out, how can you have a worshipful church? Then others go deeper and say, worship just isn't about singing, it's a matter of the heart. They quote things like, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Do you know I have a big problem with this in my own life? I have a big problem with this verse because for me, I look at it and I think, Garth, what about these things? I have a passion and a love for these things. Sure, they're about grace. One thing is about the demonstration of grace and the other thing is something that at the moment needs a darn lot of grace. I'll let you work out which one. <laughs> but I have a passion for these things and I know at times they're my treasure. I've seen Les Mis three times this week at Royal Warrigal had it on. I've seen it three times this week. I watch the crows every week and I know at times they're my treasure. Is that wrong? Is this going against what scripture is saying? At times, does my behaviour show that I'm worshipping these instead of something else? If you go to Webster's Dictionary, it says worship is to honour and exaggerate love and extreme submission. Is that what I'm doing for those things? But surely for the Christian Worship goes deeper than that. Our English word worship simply means worth-ship. The worship means to ascribe worth, to acknowledge value. We worship that which is worthy. In other words, a major part of our worship is all about the one we are directing our worship to. If we were to look at the Bible in regards to worship, we see an interesting thing. The main Hebrew word used in the Old Testament means to bow down. There are three different meanings in the New Testament Greek. It means to kiss towards, to show reverence, and to serve. When you put all of these things together, we see from a biblical point of view, worship involves both attitude and action. It involves an attitude of love, reverence, and respect, and an action of bowing praising and serving. True worship involves the mind, emotions and the will. It is a response. For us Christians then, the focus and practice of our worship is on the worthiness of God. True worship, in other words, is defined by the worthiness we place on God in our lives with whatever we're doing. Whether it's at work, whether it's singing in church, whether it's having a meal with the family. It involves more than just singing. Worship isn't just singing. Worship, Christian worship, is a lifestyle. God is a God who wants us to praise him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole emotions. To worship God is to make recognition of his worth and worthiness. Worship is recognising God and acknowledging him. 
It is to look Godward and acknowledge the value of what you see. The Bible calls it glorifying God or giving glory to God. I guess this is the, one of the reasons we also sing that song called Heart of Worship. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about Jesus. And Jeff says, I'm sorry for the things that I've made it. Why? Because it's all about you. Genuine worship has the praise of God as its object. You're speaking of pointing, Richard? That's what it points to. The Lord Jesus Christ was the object of the early church's affection and he should be ours. Why? Because the Bible is quite clear. Our God is worthy of our worship. We sang a song. We're here to worship because of who you are. You are good. But think about this. Would you continue to worship God if from this day forward he wasn't good to you? What if God's miraculous blessings and wonders were taken away or not evident in your life from this day forward? What if from this day forward your life was just one complete mess and struggle? Would God still be worthy then of your worship? Or is worship completely dependent on the abundant blessings that God puts on our lives? Do you only worship God for what he can do for you? What happens if he stops? Well, let me tell you, we don't worship God because of what he will do for us. We worship God because of who he is to us. He is our God. He can choose to do in our lives whatever he wants whether it's good, whether it's bad, he is still worthy of our worship. I think I've mentioned here at, um, when I was at Tagulua, they asked me, can I preach through the book of Revelation? It took two years. You reckon this series gone a long time? Imagine two years. It took me two years to preach through the book of Revelation. And doing that, I was surprised at one of the biggest things I learned. Do you know, one of the biggest things I learned from preaching for the book of Revelation wasn't about the end times, which I think most people would say, if you study the book of Revelation, then the thing you'll learn about is the end times. Well, that's not what I came across to me. A theme over and over again in the book was revealing how those in heaven were doing one thing. They were praising, they were worshipping, and they were singing. Throughout the book of Revelations, we catch a glimpse of heavenly worship. These people are literally in the presence of the living God. John's vision transports us into heaven itself, and there we see the chief activity of the people, what they're doing. They're singing praise to God. Consider this passage from Revelation 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creature and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Do you notice how they're singing? Loud. It was loud. Gone honouring worship is always humble. Right? I'm not here to just say, let's start swinging off chandeliers. It is humble. But let me tell you, it is never stuffy, it is never rigid, and it is never without celebration. Because worship always puts the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their right place. What place is that? 
a place of honour in our lives. When you think of how we'll be able to praise God when we get to heaven after reading Revelation, it's exciting. But what's even more exciting is the thought that we can do that right now. We can start a life of worship now. Just before I move on to my last point, I want to make one more comment about worship. I know we have corporate worship, which is congregational. But let me tell you, genuine Christian worship is an individual thing as well. It's personal. True worship is a matter of your heart expressed through a lifestyle of your praise in your way. The Holy Spirit does not violate a believer's personality. He uses it to help that person as an individual express praise to God in their own way. Let me tell you this. Worship will be different for everyone and worship will look different for everyone. Why? Because it's not just singing. We all love different things. I had those two things up earlier. Do you know there was a guy in our church that saw Les Mis three times and he said that there was nine hours of his life that he'd never get back. He hated it. As I said before, they were all NRL people. I tried to get them onto AFL. Didn't work. Couldn't do it. Rick Warren in Purpose Driven Life speaks on worship and he says it's interesting. We all like different food. We all like different movies. We all like different people. But he says when we come to a church, even though everyone is different, the church expects everyone to worship the same. We have the right, even the responsibility, to express our praise to God in the manner that best reflects our individual personalities and cultures. Worship is something of you giving God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit the right place of honour in your life. So no two Christians will have the identical work worship experience. Even though they may participate in the same service, at the same time, in the same place, their worship will be different. Do you know, I can't help but think if we all kept that in mind, it might encourage a deeper appreciation for one another's form of worship. The final thing our verse is, is they were enjoying the favour of all the people. Not sure if you ever read the quote, Gandhi was in an interview once and he was asked about Christians and this was his answer. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It seems that no one had that view of the early church. They had a good reputation in the community. People were impressed with this early band of joyful, loving, giving, united group of Jesus followers. The, ch the early church had a powerful testimony amongst the unsaved. They not, not only because of the miracles done by the apostles, but also because of the way the members of this fellowship loved each other, served each other and in the name of the Lord and served those on the outside. The people around them saw the great transformation in these Christians and they were respected for it and they were appreciated for it. A God-honouring church is known for their respect and love for all people in the community. When a church engages themselves in community project, when a church serves a community, do you know what they're doing? They're adding Jesus to that community. And just as this early church did, when they love, serve and care, 
they earn a well-deserved reputation from a group of people about who truly care for Jesus. No, we're not going to agree with everybody. No, we're not going to be liked and treated well by everybody. But we should be a church who wants to go out and respect everybody. And in God's power, we're going to love everybody. And this is important because as the old saying goes, no one will care about what we know until they know we care. People in the world need to see the image of Christ reflected in Christians. Those who claim to follow Jesus Christ or to strive to act like Jesus Christ. Those who do no such thing will not, not obtain the blessing. They will be a hindrance to God's purposes. Christians can have favour with the people when they reflect Christ and show the love, mercy and compassion of Christ while remaining his humble servants. When people are confronted with this kind of love, with this kind of message from Christians, they will surely be impacted by the experience. Yes, some will turn away convicted of their sin and seek to justify themselves and never follow. But many others will want to learn more because they see that the Christian has something that they do not. This is only possible when people can see something different in Christians. What do I mean? When Christians think and act the same way the church, that the world thinks and acts, then there is nothing distinctively different about the Christian. So the person in the world cannot find the advantage of being a Christian because there's no difference. When a Christian goes out with love and mercy, there will definitely be a difference. That's what they saw in that early church. I mentioned my love for Les Mis. I often wondered, was Victor Hugo a Christian? And so I did some study and research, and it seems that he wasn't. He wrote, he said, I wrote the book Les Miserables after seeing how law and punishment were given and shown by the local government authorities. And then I compared that to how punishment and law was given by people of the church. And he said, yes, there was a very big difference. For those who know the musical, you will know that the very last line said in that musical before the epilogue is, and remember, the truth that once was spoken, to love another person is to see the face of God. The greatest testimony to the message of Jesus is the Christian whose life reflects the love, mercy, compassion and humility of his master. That's what these early followers did. I can't help but think if it worked in the first century, then surely it can still work today. It is true that when Christians are like their Christ, many worldly forces stand up to resist them and persecute them. But one of the greatest hindrances to the cause of Christ are the many who profess belief in Jesus Christ but do not reflect the love, mercy, compassion or humility. I mentioned to you my principal at the school I worked at, he used to say so many times when working with kids, but it's true for life. Often people won't remember what you said to them, but they will 100% remember how you made them feel. Let us, therefore, gain favour with those around us who we are able to gain favour with, those on the outside. How do we do that? Let us reflect the love and humility of our Lord 
and Saviour Jesus Christ to them. Now, I'm not saying today that let's just have a love everybody and accept all behaviours gospel. What I'm preaching today is this. Let us be genuine, heartfelt church to those who are lost. Let us be heartfelt in the way we deal with them. Let us deal with them with the same love and grace the way God dealt with us when we were in that position. So that brings me to the end of this series. The early church we've been focusing on in the book of Acts was a great church. We've seen they're a devoted church, Orfield church, united church, generous church, joyful worshipping. They are an example. But this is what I want to leave you with. I know what I'm about to say to you sounds so contradictory to the series that I've just spent so many weeks doing. But I believe it's important to finish with one big problem we can do when it comes to looking at the early church which writes about in Acts. I think the big problem is this. This is a problem that we can do with this passage. We can read these passages, we can look at this and say, ah, here's the formula for being a successful church. It would be easy for us to think that we would want, if you want to thrive as a church, if you want to grow as a church, if you want to be impactful as a church, then all you have to do is read Acts and then just go and do what those Christians did. In other words, it's easy to say, here are some more things to get busy with. If we do these things, then we'll solve all the problems of the church and we'll be a success story just like them. Do you think this is why Luke wrote this? Is this the good news of this passage? Well, no. What we read is not a formula for success. The account in Acts is not there for us to simply mimic, copy or imitate. To view it this way assumes that we read in Acts or to assume to become a better church. All we need to do is apply what they had. That's not correct. This isn't the point of the message. I don't believe Luke is giving us a blueprint plan of action. The purpose of this passage is about seeing people who had a whole new identity in Christ and seeing how it changed them. This was a change in last name. This was joining a new family. This was a new brotherhood and sisterhood in the presence of Jesus, who was their saviour and Lord. Luke is pointing to the impact of the work Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit had in this new community of believers. It wasn't just what the church in Jerusalem did that Luke is trying to convey. The test of the New Testament church isn't just about doing the right things. It is about having the right attitude in doing those things. It was the how and why they did those things. Through the Holy Spirit, these converts had experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. This is what we should read into these passages. Why? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, God still does this today in our world, and he, as he did back then. Despite this world's constant efforts to limit the Christian faith, despite the efforts to try and minimise it, to say it should only be done in private lives of individuals and not made public. This all-encompassing, transforming life in Jesus Christ is what God is still doing in our world today. He is still first and foremost 
making people followers of Jesus Christ. He then enables them to participate in what he is doing in this world. By him we follow his way and we devote our lives to his purpose in every aspect of our lives and the life of our church. This is possible because it is the living Holy Spirit who is here empowering us. It is him who we are following. His spirit has given us, been given to us, to transform our lives, to be diehard, radical, long-life fans of Jesus. And in Christ we find the love of God and the hope for all whom the Lord gathers together and calls his church. That's us. Because of this, we can know this. This project or this thing we call church, it is not our idea, nor is, that, nor is it our mission. It is all God who is at work in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God who grows. It is God who unites. It is God who transforms the world. And he does the exact same in churches. That's why we read, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. I'm going to finish there because I believe that is the leading point into what we're going to focus on for the next months. The mission of church. Well, let me tell you, the mission of church is all about pointing people to God and trusting him that he will do his work in the way we serve him and go about our mission. May God bless you. Amen.